Hello and good evening and welcome to the 10 p.m. Wednesday show which is running today at 11 p.m. And you must be wondering why. That is because we had to have Mr. Robert Spencer today on this show because of the topicality. And also we have Ruchir Sharma who would also talk about the international economic dimensions which are being paraded as some kind of a defense to the entire Nupur Sharma episode, which I must say, I found it quite sordid. I don't know how others will feel. And of course, Vibhuti Cha, uh, as always, on the Wednesday 10 p.m. show, today 11 p.m. And uh, here I am welcoming Mr. Robert Spencer. And, uh, uh, and of course, Ruchir has just joined. So, and Vibhutiji, welcome as always. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> and uh, some people are asking on the chat why we are not speaking in Hindi. Let me tell you that Wednesday, 10 p.m. show, today, 11 p.m., is always an English show. So, uh, uh, let's not worry about that too much. Uh, Robert, a straight question to you. Yes, sir. You know all about uh, the Nupur Sharma episode. You also tweeted about it. So, are the hadith blasphemous? <laughs> That's an excellent question. That is the implication of what is happening now. And this anger and, and hysteria over what Nupur Sharma said is extraordinary. And I find it astonishing in light of the fact that she didn't say anything except what's in the Islamic texts. And so are the Muslims actually repudiating the Islamic texts? Of course they are not. What they're doing is trying to put non-Muslims on notice that we must never speak of these things at all. And that to do so is to uh, invite difficulty and trouble unless we're speaking in a, wholesome, a fulsomely positive, fawning manner. And failing that, nothing is acceptable, and everything will lead us to violence and riots and death threats and everything else. Well, uh, another question coming out of your response, uh, uh, Robert, is that uh, uh, there's a trend today saying that uh, since the hadith are uh, uh, very very insulting to the prophet so why not ban them after all saudi arabia has already disowned them i don't think that that's quite accurate i'm sorry to say uh, saudi arabia couldn't possibly disown the hadith and they could never be banned in the first place there are numerous exhortations within the quran notably in chapter 4, verse 80, but also many other passages that say that Muslims must obey Allah and the Messenger. Now, how can you obey the Messenger when there is no information about Muhammad in the Quran? The name is only given four times, Muhammad, in the Quran, whereas other people, Moses and Jesus and others, are mentioned many, many more times than that. And there is no biographical information given. So once Muhammad is dead, how can a pious Muslim obey the messenger? You can't. You have to go to the Hadith to find out what he said and did and commanded. And so in the first place, the Hadith are not uh, negotiable. 
any any serious Muslim would never say we will ditch the Hadith and not pay any attention to them. There is a small, a very small minority of Quran-only Muslims or Quranists, as they are called, and they do reject the Hadith. But their position is incoherent because, as I noted, the Quran leads you to obedience to the Hadith. The problem is complicated by the fact that the Hadith contain numerous stories of Muhammad that even Muslims would say are inauthentic, and they would repudiate them as a result. And many times you'll find that in speaking with Muslims in debate. You'll quote a Hadith and they'll say, oh, uh, that's a weak Hadith. Nobody believes that. Nobody pays any attention to that. And it's an easy dodge. But the reality is that there is a whole science of grading the Hadith in Islamic tradition. And the ones that are considered to be strong or reliable, sahih, they are not negotiable. They are formative for Islamic law. What Nupur Sharma was referring to was Muhammad's child marriage. And that is abundantly attested in Sahih Hadith. Consequently, there is no discussion about it. It only becomes controversial when non-Muslims notice it. And then Muslims don't want to be in the position in India or in the United States or in Europe or elsewhere, anywhere they're non-Muslims. They don't want to be in the position of looking like they're endorsing pedophilia, the rape of children, and so on. And consequently, you get episodes of this kind. But in within the Muslim community, there's no discussion about this. There's no debate about, about this. Uh, in Afghanistan, for example, when uh, the Taliban was was first toppled in 2003, the aid workers went into the refugee camps and they found that half the girls of second grade age were already married and all the girls of third grade age and up were married, all of them. So we're talking about eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds. And that's because of Muhammad's example. So no one in Afghanistan is walking around saying, this is blasphemous. This is evil. You can't say this. It's taken for granted. <laughs> quite right. So that's quite an uh, anomalous situation. It's such an anomaly that, okay, that uh, this is supposed to be a venerable example. And also at the same time, uh, they feel pretty mighty guilty about it, especially the educated lot. So uh, now we come to the other dimension, and uh, that is the defense uh, that the Indian ruling party or the government is trotting out for succumbing to the puny Qatar. And there I have Richard Sharma and there are some conspiracy theories going around. There are some uh, statistics being bandied about. So um, without much ado, uh, let me try and uh, uh, pick Richard's mind. What does he think? So around this, uh, as you mentioned, Sanjayji, there have been a number of uh, explanations put forth, unofficially, of course, about why uh, the government of India, why the Ministry of External Affairs, why the party leadership itself have responded the way they did. That uh, for about 10 days, there was strategic silence. And then all of a sudden, there was this uh, notice given out that uh, Nupur Sharma is no longer um, a party spokesperson. Our membership has been uh, suspended. And uh, 
the same day, uh, there was also uh, the first of many summons that came to Indian ambassadors within West Asia uh, and the broader uh, member states of the uh, OIC. Now, the first of those, and hence the most prominent, was from Qatar. That uh, this was particularly damaging because it happened during a state visit of the Vice President of India to Doha, while he was in meetings with uh, Qatari dignitaries. Uh, the Indian ambassador was uh, pulled in, and uh, they demanded punishment uh, for uh, the actions of this party official. Now. This led to many people to uh, believe that uh, uh, the response was the response of the Indian government and uh, of the BJP was uh, a reaction to this criticism from the Gulf. And the Qatari started it, and soon every other country that wanted to establish its credentials as guardians of Islam, so uh, Iran. Uh, then uh, Saudi Arabia, and then uh, uh, others, including, I think, uh, Malaysia, uh, uh, began uh, doing the same, summoning our uh, Indian ambassadors to these countries. So that led many people uh, to thump their chest, like, oh, see the power of our ummah. Uh, the guardians came and saved us. Uh, they've uh, stood up for what's right, and they twisted the arms of, uh, of the government to act this way. Now, that's an interesting way to uh, to view it, but uh, perhaps not the full uh, picture, because it happened too quickly and too conveniently for it to have been uh, an organic response to this uh, this sort of pressure. Uh, at some point, it was the status consciousness and reputation management of the Indian government and of the ruling party themselves that uh, that showed itself in them attempting damage control in this way. Now, unfortunately, the way it panned out makes them look weak, makes them look like they surrendered. And then you have the next round of people explaining, oh, it's because we can't jeopardize our relations with uh, West Asian countries, with countries in the Gulf because of our, our trade, because of uh, uh, oil and gas supplies because of our uh, Indian migrant workers were kept as uh, essentially hostages by another name. We have to look after their well-being, and that means we have no cards to play. But uh, that's quite bizarre because uh, the, the trade is not charity. It's not that they're gifting us oil and gas. We pay for it. And if we didn't pay for it, then it would be the onus would be on them to find a new customer. Uh, so there is power for us. There is leverage you have as a customer. And also there are many countries that have a diaspora of uh, not just highly educated people, but of working class people. There's millions of Turks in Germany. But that doesn't mean Germany has leverage over uh, Turkey. In fact, it's the other way around. It means Erdogan has leverage over Germany and has leverage over uh, all of NATO, in fact, saying that uh, I won't let uh, Sweden and Finland into NATO. Uh, unless they take care of anti-Turkish uh, activists, uh, by which he means Kurdish activists. So it's, uh, it's not a unique position that India finds itself in, but the response was, uh, was not befitting a country of uh, the Vishwaguru status that India aspires to or thinks it's at. 
well vishnu guru has become a, a lot of uh, joke and i think there are many jokes floating around vishnu guru vibhuti ji uh, would you like to ask uh, questions to robert now the question to robert would be a mutual sharing of thought and reaction you know in the sense that we live in america here and uh, the blasphemy laws are becoming a problem in this country as well because it definitely and directly collides with the famous freedom of speech first amendment rights in america because freedom of speech robert is not about yapping away to glory in a park the freedom of speech is about making inquiries making distinctive information seeking why something is the way it is and how it can change people transform because you ask and make an inquiry it's not a threat but the problem with the islamic ideology is that robert i don't want your thought on it how does the rest of the world confront it because they are using the democratic rights to impose their will on us and it's it's open it's no longer a secret whereas we are not able to play the game better and i always say this is my favorite quote as a sportsman when you are in the field you got to play better than your opponent to win the game are we playing the game better that's the point and how do we do that particularly no. when we know knowing what we know is that they are exploiting our rules against us yes but only in so far as we allow them to and that would be how we could play the game better is to stop allowing it for example you're talking about people who see the world in terms of strength and weakness this is essentially the primary way that islamists understand the world and so when the bjp says we're suspending nupur sharma they're projecting weakness to a group that believes that that is an opportunity for them and so the way to confront this and this challenge is to project strength and instead for the party to have said that uh, she was right that she was accurately conveying what is in islamic tradition that they are going to defend her that would have sent a signal of strength that would have been respected actually by the parties that they're trying to appease now and uh you know you speak about the freedom of speech and the freedom of speech is almost a dead letter it's on its way out not just uh uh in europe but in the united states as well just recently there was an episode that uh well it began actually with barack obama the former president and hillary clinton the former presidential candidate secretary of state she uh, and obama both in separate addresses denounced the freedom of speech and said that uh, there was so much misinformation and disinformation online that we have to have more government controls to fight it and then just days later it was announced that the department of homeland security which is supposed to be fighting terrorists was establishing what it called a disinformation governance board to fight against so-called disinformation now the fact that this was under the auspices of DHS 
was very concerning because it showed that the people spreading the alleged disinformation would be treated as terrorists. Now, there was an outcry on freedom of speech grounds, and now the Disinformation Governance Board has been paused, they say, not, not, not abolished. They haven't given it all up, but it's on pause until we're looking the other way. The point is that there are efforts to curb the freedom of speech everywhere. And what's happened actually in India over the last few days is all in line with that, that ultimately it will be illegal there. It will be a matter of criminal charge. Well, we're already seeing it actually with all the complaints filed against Nupur Sharma. It's, it's a criminal offense to offend Islam. And in Jammu and Kashmir, there were two, what was it, three people arrested for saying they, they stood with her on Facebook. And so it's the same thing there that's happening in the United States, that ultimately this kind of speech, even if it's accurate and true, because it's critical, will be criminalized and silenced as a result. I mean, you are absolutely on the money because the freedom of press, uh, freedom of speech is under threat. And that's the question. If you are, will, if you criticize my faith the way I do my Murti Puja and the way I believe in my God, and if you are, you get away with it and we do nothing about them quoting their own hadiths so for that matter, how justified is that? And that brings me to Ruchir. And Ruchir, my inquiry with you would be, that given the ties, you know, like, for example, Qatar is notorious for its acts. Qatar is notorious for having a major split with the GCC countries in which they snapped relationship for whatever they were doing. So, you know, is Nupur Sharma incident that important to belittle every other tie-up on security, energy, you know, you know, investments and joint projects to have derailed in that fashion, was India overreacting? You know, we, we Indians are very bizarre. Either we become digambars, totally non-involved, or we become emotionally so involved that we cry all the time. This is what my problem is with the Hindu reaction to the Indian government reaction. They panicked, put over, over, over importance to the whole thing. And as a result of which, then everything looks bizarre. Your thoughts on this, Richard? Uh, it's uh, yeah, it was very interesting to see this uh, this pattern, especially because, as you mentioned, so Qatar had a big falling out with the other countries of the of the Gulf, uh, and in recent memory, not not you know ten twenty years ago, in the last five years. Yes. And uh, over these uh, years, India has also grown, grown closer to Qatar's rivals, uh, to Saudi Arabia, to the United Arab Emirates. And essentially, within the Islamic world, there are currently three blocks. There's uh, the Wahhabi block with, uh, under the leadership of Saudi Arabia. There's the Muslim Brotherhood uh, block uh, with uh, Qatar, with uh, Turkey and uh, Malaysia. And then you have the Iranian block. Now, each of these countries, each of these blocks, they have their own methods. They have their own man dogs and attack dogs. Uh, they have their own uh, lobbyists in, uh, in DC, uh, in Washington, DC. And each of them uses their power in different ways to establish themselves as the guardians of Islam, as the leaders of uh, the region. Now, in the last eight years, India has had quite, well, in public, a successful West Asian diplomacy strategy where we've 
fostered uh, ties with Saudi Arabia and with the United Arab Emirates, uh, taken them to new uh, new heights. Uh, both of them uh, have grown close in trade. We have free trade agreements uh, uh, coming into into being with them. There was the first Hindu temple being consecrated in the Emirates, uh, and all of this is meaningless when you allow their rival in the region, Qatar, to push you around. What was the point of all of this outreach? What was the point of becoming strategic partners with uh, the Saudis and with the Emiratis if you can't even stand up to their rivals uh, or lean on them to, uh, to establish that, you know, uh, that India is part of our new anti-Qatari, anti-Turkish bloc? Uh, uh, people have talked about this, that uh, the, instead of the Quad, there's uh, what I call the pentagram. France, Egypt, uh, Greece, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and India, countries that are opposed to the Qatari-Turkish uh, axis. That uh, it's meaningless if you still allow Qatar to push you around. It's meaningless if you allow Qatari agents and assets from the Muslim Brother Network, from uh, Qatar and Turkey and their local assets like Ranayu uh, and uh, her associated acts to push you around with zero consequences. So I find it very bizarre that we've aligned ourselves with one of the three blocks within the Islamic world. We turned our backs to the Iranians, who we had a long relationship with, to cultivate this relationship with Saudi Arabia and with uh, the Emirates. And then it's meaningless when the tiniest of these countries when Qatar pushes you around, or Turkey, which is going through an economic crisis, pushes you around. Uh, what was the point of defanging Pakistan if you created three new Pakistans in Turkey, uh, Qatar, and Malaysia? You are uh, oh, Yeah, very good point, mate. Just, just, just a supplementary to this. What is this uh, Adani angle? The 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 Qatari wealth. Uh, sovereign wealth fund and uh, the Adani connection that is uh, pretty much on the social media today. It's 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 kind of flared up today. Any idea about it? No, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, I, I just heard some you know uh, people on social media saying that oh uh, that there's a big uh, uh, investment from Qatar into Adani oil and gas, but beyond that, I don't know the details of it or uh, uh, how deep that goes. Uh, similarly, some have said that uh, that uh, political parties in India are financed by Qatar in order to keep all sides uh, happy and to maintain good relationships. That Qatar is quite a clever operator. That when they were cut off by the Saudi-led uh, uh, alliance. Uh, they managed to survive and thrive uh, through the strength of their lobbying, through the set, uh, strength of their money and willingness to spend it, uh, through their soft power, so to speak, to the extent that uh, uh, this is what real soft power is. Uh, it's not our yoga and, uh, uh, and blue jeans or cricket, uh, but rather when your influence causes other countries to act in your interest without you needing to use your hard power. And that's what we've seen. And unfortunately, India is just an open access country, which allows everyone to come and treat us as some sort of great game, like uh, 
like in the past, uh, Iran in the first half of the 20th century or Afghanistan. Uh, it's where big powers come to play their influence politics and use us as chess pieces and, and great powers, nine of powers, Qatar and uh, Saudi. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm back to Robert. Uh, let's talk about this uh, whole business of uh, uh, blasphemy politics. Uh, this uh, blasphemy politics uh, is actually completely irrational. And uh, we've seen this in this uh, Nupur Sharma episode. She said three things, all of them perfectly supported by the Islamic text. So that actually amounted to, as we just discussed, that uh, uh, it was actually a case of people taking offense to Islamic texts, actually. So where do we draw the line in this uh, blasphemy business? Well, I don't think any free country should have any blasphemy laws uh, or any penalties for any kind of speech outside of direct calls for criminal activity or incitement to violence. And so uh, there's no place for uh, drawing the line for blasphemy should be draw with uh, drawing a line through blasphemy altogether. Uh, that very concept depends upon everyone in the country holding to the same points of view. And this you don't find prevailing even in Saudi Arabia or Somalia or Sudan or Iran. Consequently, there's no place for blasphemy laws uh, nowadays. So you, we see how many people are persecuted all the time on a regular basis in Pakistan because of their blasphemy laws. So uh, the problem in this case is that India, the Indian government is behaving as if India has these blasphemy laws, which to the best of my knowledge is not the case and certainly should not be the case. Uh, after all, it's not even a, a Muslim country. Why should it be behaving as if it's adherent to Sharia? But there isn't any conceivable way that Nupur Sharma's statements were offensive except in light of Sharia. And even then, it's important to note that Sharia does not forbid non-Muslims to say falsehoods about Muhammad or Islam. The exact wording in Islamic law is that it is forbidden for non-Muslims to mention something impermissible about Allah or the Prophet or the Quran. And this is what she's, what's wrong with what she did. What she said was impermissible to say. It's not that anyone's saying that it's inaccurate, it's that she's not allowed to say it. In an analogous fashion, the rage over the Muhammad cartoons that had le led to riots all over the world some years back is in direct contradiction to the fact that particularly in Shiite Islam, there's a long tradition of drawing Muhammad, and there is a, there's a there are great artworks that depict Muhammad. It was never forbidden to draw Muhammad. It's only when non-Muslims start to draw Muhammad in a way that's critical, then suddenly it's not allowed. It's impermissible. The idea is always to enforce a state of submission for the non-Muslims, and that's the agenda here. And the BJP is playing right into it and submitting and accepting the parameters of the debate that are being set out by 
the by Qatar and by the other Islamic entities involved here. Which is that authority which makes it impermissible? Oh, that's a, a quote from uh, Umdar As-Salik, Reliance of the Traveler, which is a manual of Islamic law endorsed by the Shafi'i school, which is one of the four major schools of Sunni jurisprudence. And it's you will find actually the, the same idea in all the other schools of jurisprudence, including the Deobandis, that it is not permissible. You can't. There are certain things that must not be said by non-Muslims. It's not that they're they're nobody's saying they're lying or they're false. They're just not permitted to say. And obviously, the Nupur Sharma was not saying it's great that Muhammad married a child. It's wonderful. And failing that to no, even note the fact is not permissible. Okay, uh, it's uh, maybe, maybe something maybe. like uh, something maybe. like the old uh, one. One minute. Yes, yeah, uh, it's some, something like that old uh, zimma that was imposed by Omar on the uh, Christians okay. when they first conquered Syria. It's exactly like that. As a matter of fact, this is one of the rules of the zimma that the non-Muslims, the contract of protection, so-called, is voided if they mention something impermissible about Muhammad or Islam or the Quran. So congratulations, Vibhutiji. We are all Zimmis now. Perfect. <laughs> yes, that's the idea. That was never in doubt. <laughs> that's true. We are all Zimmis now. And I was, as in one of the shows we talked about, Robert and I will be out of job. <laughs> we can't talk about it anymore. Yes. Subject matter. But I have another question of geopolitics to inquire with you, Robert, and to Ruchir as well. And we each one of us must chime in. Uh, what's the American role? There was a news item circulating yesterday that it is an American play that all of them have indulged in because, because important, uh, India has not been quite playing to the American tune of Biden and Blinken. And uh, as a result of which, if you remember, Modi embraced MBS when he was under major threat of uh, organizing a killing of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. India embraced Putin, did not condemn the Ukraine part. India embraced Iranian oil when nobody was trying, US, and all these three entities were anathema to America. Do you think, do you think that it is potentially America is having a laugh or like Blinken had made statements in, the, in, in India to somewhere along the line, America ends up undermining a democracy of the size of India. Will it come to haunt America? Yes. Uh, I think yes, certainly it will come to haunt America. Is Blinken trying to get, put pressure on India in this? I'm not aware of any statements that the American government has made. Maybe you are. Uh, but I wouldn't be in the least surprised, given the nature of the Biden administration, if the if Blinken or someone else were to denounce Nupur Sharma and say that it, the, this is a terrible thing that has happened, because the uh, Biden administration pursues relentlessly a policy of appeasement to Iran and to the Muslim Brotherhood entities within the United States. And so the Muslim Brotherhood entities within the United States, of course, are strongly tied to Qatar 
and that uh, takes us back to everything that, that Richard was saying before about Cutter's role in this. And so, uh, do you do I do I think that the Americans will likely kowtow to Cutter? Yes, I think that's very likely. Richard, I would say that. Uh... See, Qatar doesn't need any encouragement to do this. They would do it anyway because they want to fashion themselves as the leaders of the region. And because, you know, second, you know, number two always tries harder, right? The second best always tries harder. They're the, the revisionist power in the region that are trying to take over from uh, the Saudis and the Iranians. So, of course, they were first to uh, fall over themselves to, uh, to condemn it. But you should also keep in mind that nothing in Qatar happens without the blessings of the US and the UK, uh, both of which are countries that maintain attack dogs to do their dirty work for them when it's domestically unacceptable or unpopular for them to do it themselves. So like you mentioned, uh, it's unlikely that Blinken himself would condemn this because he has nothing to gain. His party has very little to gain as well. Uh, so if they wanted to, then they would use one of their proxies in this manner. But uh, then again, it was not just U.S.-aligned countries that were condemning it. It was also Iran, who are quite antagonistic towards uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, and it was also uh, countries that we are supposedly uh, on better terms with as well. And I, I like what uh, what Robert said earlier that uh, strength respects strength, power respects power. Uh, there was a great uh, example of that recently. Uh, people were sharing it on Twitter that uh, in the 1930s, so 1937, uh, Benito Mussolini, the dictator of Italy, uh, was presented uh, with something called the Saif al-Islam, the sword of Islam. And he was declared the protector of Islam uh, because he was occupying, Italy was occupying parts of North Africa, Tripolitania at the at that point. And that's a great example. Perhaps I can share, uh, share it here. Um, do you see this? And, and the treatment of the Uyghurs. Yes, exactly. And another is the treatment of the Uyghurs. So this is Mussolini with the Saif al-Islam. And it was given to him by a local uh, uh, Muslim who supported Italian occupation. And that's an example of, uh, of how power strength respects strength. Have you shared it? Oh, did it not work? Uh, let me try again. You share your screen. Yes, I'm trying to share my screen. Uh, let's see. Here we are. So do you see this? Yes. Yeah, so this is Mussolini on his horse, holding the Saif al-Islam that was presented to him when he was declared uh, a protector of Islam, uh, thanks to Italy's colonial adventures in North Africa. Uh, so that's a very interesting tidbit of history. And then you mentioned the other one, that uh, with, uh, with China, or uh, apart from China, even with, uh, with Central Asian countries, with the Sands, who crack down heavily on political Islam and Islamist uh, separatism and Islamist uh, nationalism, uh, you don't see criticism of their methods because their methods are effective. And in fact, their methods are endorsed. Uh, it's very interesting to see that in Muslim majority countries, a lot of 
behaviors, a lot of practices, a lot of so-called traditions, a lot of ideologies that are encouraged and state-supported in India are actually banned in Muslim-majority countries as being dangerous and subversive. The Tablighi Jamaat is banned, a banned organization in uh, Saudi Arabia. The Muslim Brotherhood is banned in many uh, countries. A very good example, uh, beyond China and Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, is Central Asia, that the Stans, the uh, countries like Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, uh, they, during Soviet times, engaged in a massive de-radicalization of, uh, of the theology and of uh, the practice of Islam in these regions. Uh, and remember, this is where a lot of the invaders who came to Indian medieval times uh, originate from Samarkand, from Bukhara, from Kiva. Uh, and it was quite a successful uh, uh, neutralization of a lot of the radicalism that had been fostered in that, uh, in that region. And even today, the successive states of the Soviet Union in the region, uh, for example, Tajikistan, clamps down heavily on the politicization of Islam. They say Islam is a religion, it belongs in your home. Uh, they don't allow children to attend mosques to uh, uh, prevent them from being radicalized. You're not allowed to have a beard beyond a certain length because that's a sign that you are radicalized. Uh, the uh, mosques are state controlled and uh, the state decides uh, what uh, scripture is acceptable and unacceptable uh, and have uh, gone to great lengths to ensure that radical interpretations and ideologies have no place in their society and do not destabilize society or politics in these countries. If you like, I can share another video about that, a short clip about uh, how Islam is practiced in, uh, in Tajikistan about headscarves, about beards, about uh, uh, children in, uh, in mosques. But uh, you, uh, you can continue with your questions. I'll set that up. Yeah, but just uh, um, another supplement to that is that uh, by that account, if you say that uh, if you keep them under a tight leash and give them a hard time, then they give you a lot of respect to even present you with the sword of uh, Islam. So the, uh, right now, the pointer is that there are two people eminently qualified to receive Saiful Islam in India, too. Uh, that's Yogi Adityanath and Himanta Bishu Sharma. So uh, I think they should be uh, encouraged to present them with Saiful Islam. And maybe it's only because of the prime minister that they're not going the whole hog. But otherwise, they know exactly how to control this lot. What do you say, Robert? You're muted. Still muted. You're muted. How's, oh, there we are. Uh, this is the same. It's always the same principle that they respect strength and they despise weakness. The uh, Indian government is going to be in for a rude surprise if they think that in uh, expelling the these two from the party that while well, suspending Nupur Sharma and expelling uh, the the gentleman, what's his name? Naveen Jindal. Uh, anyway, uh, the, yes, uh, the, they're going to quiet the situation. On the contrary, they're, they're only emboldening the jihadis within India because they see, the, oh, this government is weak and they're frightened and they're cowardly. 
Now is the time to act and to step up the jihad activity. Right, Richard, you were sharing something. Yeah, Richard, uh, you said you, you, you wanted to share a clip regarding the Central yes. Asian uh, radicalization. Yeah. Uh, All right. Do you see this? Yes. And tell me if you can hear it. Which brings us to religion. 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 The vast majority, religion. The vast majority at about 98% of, of the country. Muslim, mostly in the Sunni branch, Hanafi. The rest are mostly Christian, mostly Orthodox. Now, it may be a Muslim majority country, however, different from other Muslim nations. So just to check, can you hear Can you hear him? Yeah, you can hear In fact, there's an echo. You can hear them. Okay, perhaps I need to mute myself. Do I need to mute myself? I think that would be a good idea. Yes, yes, right. yes, yes. Let me just try this again. Which brings us to religion. Faith-wise, the vast majority at about 98% of the country identifies as Muslim, mostly in the Sunni branch, Hanafi school of jurisprudence. The rest are mostly Christian, mostly Russian Orthodox. Now, it may be a Muslim majority country. However, here, things are a little different from other quote-unquote Muslim nations. And besides the fact that you'll probably see people drinking alcohol and eating pork products, the government also has imposed a lot of laws that they claim maintain tradition over non-traditional practices. Basically, even though the country is categorically secular and allows freedom of religion, the government has heavy involvement in anything religion-based, especially Islam. Their reasoning being, think of it, when you come from a culture that might sometimes clash with what many might consider Arab-centric customs that dominate much of the Muslim world, you're probably going to get a country like Tajikistan. For example, the government has a list of pre-approved topics for imams to preach on in mosques. Attendance to mosques and religious matters are banned for children under 18 unless they express interest. The Hajj, or pilgrimage to Mecca, is banned for anyone under 35. Hijabs, let alone burqa, or any other Islamic clothing are banned for women. If they want to dress modestly, they usually wear like a hair scarf. And men are not allowed to have thick beards as they are usually affiliated with extremism. Even Arab Islamic names were considered to be banned, even though the president kind of has one himself. <laughs> Shut up. Their rationale behind this, it's, it's kind of like this. Look, Iran, Afghanistan, I don't care if we practically speak the same language. I am not getting lumped into all the drama that you got into in the past few decades. Calling us Who do you think you are? You're calling me dramatic? dramatic? You literally had a civil war. And I have more real types in my country than you do. Yeah, it gets a little complicated when they get their cousins involved. <laughs> and their entire world is full of cousins. Now, there you have a problem. <laughs> that's, I think, that's an interesting topic, of course. Now, uh, the, I think it's an interesting topic. I can, we can have Robert on the cousin marriages. Uh, where, where does that come from? <laughs> that comes from the tribal affiliations that you don't trust anybody outside your group. And you're at perpetual war, essentially, with everyone else in the world. And so... The only people you can safely marry are within your family. You you hate everyone else. You're at war with everyone else. It comes from having a doctrine of violence at the core of your religion. But this video is fascinating because it shows that the government there is working specifically to restrict the power of political Islam and to ensure that it cannot 
spread there. And so that is something that is respected by the Islamic authorities. And you don't see, you don't ever hear about jihad activity in the stands, the former Soviet republics in Central Asia. When was the last time you heard about jihad attacks in Kazakhstan or Tajikistan or Uzbekistan or Kyrgyzstan? These are not jihadi hotbeds, and they're not jihadi hotbeds precisely because of government policies of this kind. And if the other governments in the world, including India, were to stand up in the same way and say, we're going to take active restrictions, you're perfectly free to practice Islam, but you're not free to practice subversion of the government or attempt to bring Sharia here or to subjugate non-Muslims under the hegemony of Islamic law, and we're going to take steps to ensure that that doesn't happen, then a great deal of the problem of jihad in all non-Muslim countries would go away. And these countries are testimony to that fact. Yeah, quite right. Actually, if I, uh, the, the Constitution of India provides for that. Uh, Robert, I, I'll read it for you. I don't know whether you have read it. Uh, it's Article 25, the Constitution of India says, freedom of conscience and free profession, practice and propagation of religion. And uh, uh, this it's um, subsection 1. It says, subject to public order, morality and health and to the other provisions of this part that is the part which contains the fundamental rights so it actually makes the freedom of conscience and religion a secondary right and not merely that it's subsection 2 goes on to say that nothing in this article shall affect the operation of any existing law or prevent the state from making any law regulating a regulating or restricting any economic financial political or other secular activity which may be associated with religious practice and b also providing for social welfare and reform and of course there's a bit thrown about the uh, hindu temples but uh, this actually covers the entire arena of uh, what is called political Islam. And every bit of it can be covered and restricted and regulated by enacting laws by the state, but the state doesn't. So it's actually a matter of willpower, political will. Yes, it's, it's our weakness that we've allowed uh, subversive ideologies and interpretations of religions that are not allowed in other countries to flourish with state support and patronage uh, in India. To the extent that in Tajikistan, if you are a hardcore extremist, uh, you're actually ostracized from society. You know, uh, women make fun of uh, of people who are part of the Tablighi Jamaat over there, saying that, oh, haha, you know, they couldn't get married and then they turn bitter and they become, they grow a big beard. And what do they do? They go to India. They go to India because there's a flourishing uh, ecosystem of seminaries that will validate their beliefs, that will give them training. Uh, if you remember, at the beginning of the corona pandemic, the first wave in India, there was this uh, super spreader event uh, hosted by Maulana Saab in, uh, in Delhi that, uh, that was full of 
tablighi jamaat members where did they come from they came from the stands they came from central asia because what they wanted to practice is illegal in their countries and india's not just today traditionally has been a hotbed for the most radical interpretations of islam uh there's many reasons for that but much of what you see today wahhabism in saudi arabia was born in india was born in up uh ayatollah khomeini his ancestry his ancestors came from up uh you have uh, deobandis and uh, barelbis you have tablighis uh because india is in a unique situation where the believers are outnumbered by infidels that leads to feelings of shame and inferiority and is expressed through a purification of the ideology and of the theology wherein west up has traditionally been fertile ground for extremist interpretations of islam uh and has remains a hub this is where you come to get radicalized because no government in india is able or willing to understand let alone tackle the implications of this that pakistan was born out of these ideologies and you still have jinnah's portrait at uh, aligarh muslim university oh, and, okay. uh, does anyone have uh, our prime minister actually our prime minister actually uh, in one of the functions uh, in amu i think to commemorate one of its uh, anniversaries or something uh, he said that uh, AMU was the epicenter of India's freedom movement and to that i commented yes it was an epicenter for a freedom movement but not of india but of pakistan yes so for a prime minister to harbor that kind of uh, a thought even <laughs> i think even nehru didn't say that even nehru went to amu and said that you guys created pakistan You know, so on that point i think we already at 50 minutes mark so i think we need to take questions from the audience uh, vibhuti ji can you start with the audience questions sure sure mahantesh hosmat thank 